0: KYW News Radio original podcasts.
1: This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Ian Bush. I get a lot of emails every week from public relations firms trying to score news coverage for this latest and greatest product, or to get their expert in front of a microphone on the issue of the day. You got to admire some of these pitches. Uh, It can be a bit of a stretch to see the news value at times, Uh, like the Rydum Cowboy Harness that arrived to the newsroom for my consideration once. Uh, But this email caught my eye. Neil deGrasse Tyson interview was the simple subject, and I hit the reply button before I really even knew what it was about, which was to promote his new book called Cosmic Queries. Uh, I grew up in a space-enthralled home. Uh, We went to the planetarium that was run by our local public school system really often. Uh, The space shuttle launch pad was the centerpiece of my Lego town in the basement. To this day, my dad keeps a schedule of sighting opportunities for the International Space Station and and heads outside to watch its orbit in the night sky whenever he can. So you'd imagine getting the chance to speak with this famed astrophysicist would be a thrill. And Carol McKenzie and I were supposed to chat with Neil live on air on KYW, but his Zoom connection dropped out. Luckily, we were able to reschedule, and instead of five minutes, I got to pick his brain for about 20, and he even laughed. Neil deGrasse Tyson laughed at some of my feeble jokes, and I got to speak with him about the current state of space exploration, whether he would want to visit space, and what he thinks about COVID in terms of his work, his study of the cosmos. How this started, how it will end, and all the matter dark and otherwise in between. World-renowned astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson is with us to talk about his new book, Cosmic Queries. Uh, Neil, you devote uh, an entire chapter to the question, are we alone in the universe? Uh, The old Stephen Hawking line comes to mind. Some say intelligent life has yet to appear on planet Earth. But uh, do you believe there are intelligent beings out there
0: Yeah, it's not so much a matter of belief. You can just sort of look at what is the plausibility of the evidence that confronts us. So, we look at the ingredients of life on Earth, and it's got sort of hydrogen, oxygen, carbon. As we know from science fiction stories, they correctly declare that we are carbon-based life. Uh, Nitrogen, you look at these ingredients and you say, well, are they rare or are they common in the universe? And it turns out the hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, nitrogen, which is basically the foundations of all biochemistry, are the most common chemically active ingredients in the universe. So so you can't appeal to, to rarity of basic ingredients to declare that we are alone. But let's keep going. So uh, how about planets? Well, our catalog of exoplanets now is rising through 4,000. And if you step back and look at the map of the galaxy, all those planets are like right in front of our noses because we don't have the ability to detect planets much farther away. But we have that many just in the region, the the local pocket of our own region of the Milky Way. So, So planets, if life has to exist on a planet, then planets aren't rare. And then you say, all right, maybe it takes a long time to make life. Well, how long did it take to make life on Earth? took about 100 million years to go from organic molecules to self-replicating life. 100 million years, that sounds like a long time, of course, but that's short compared with how long Earth has been around. So, Earth has been around 4.5 billion years, and early in that period, over 100 million years, life started. So, whatever challenges we have duplicating this exercise of converting organic molecules to life... Whatever challenges we have, nature didn't seem to have such challenges and figured it out and did it. And the universe is really old. The universe was around for 10 billion years before our solar system was even formed. So you combine the age of the universe, how quickly life forms, how many planets there are, just extrapolating to the rest of the galaxy, how common our ingredients are, you would have no excuse other than what might be religious to declare that we are alone in the universe when I say religious I mean more broadly if you might have a philosophy that requires life on earth be singular across the universe if you do it's not based on science
1: I speak of kind of a religious devotion uh, you have done so with your life to the the study of science and the cosmos and to uh, explaining it in a way that's fun and fascinating uh, but I wondered if you have a desire to to travel to space and uh, perhaps uh, would consider it to be an incomplete life if you don't end up getting there. Uh, Would you hop on board a rocket with Elon Musk?
0: Well, most people's understanding and definition of space differs from mine. People when when they go into space, they go into orbit around the Earth. Well, how high up is that orbit? It's about 200 miles. All right, so if you drive from Los Angeles to San Francisco, you have traveled farther in distance than the height above you of people in low Earth orbit. So to me, that's not space. Space is a destination. It's not just boldly going where hundreds have gone before in orbit, in low Earth orbit. So yeah, if if you've got rockets that'll go to the moon or Mars or beyond, sign me up. But I'm not one of these high-risk explorers, like the people who ascend the north face of Mount Everest knowing that there's a 20% chance they'll die. I'm not one of those people, mm. right? So, and I joke, I tell Elon, Elon, you want me to go to Mars on your rocket? First show me that you've sent your mother and brought her back on that same rocket, then I'll go, okay? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I'm, I would love to go into space, to go somewhere in space and, and if I don't do it by the time I'm dying, that's fine too. I mean, my brain is up there all the time anyway. So my body can live with that.
1: What do you make of, of the success of our overall success of the exploration of Mars? And is it worth, in your estimation, spending the the tens of billions of dollars it would take to return humans to the moon? Is is the moon ambitious enough for us in the near future?
0: When, when you say worth it, uh, that implies you're seeking a value judgment. And in a, in a free society, pluralistic society, I don't see it as my role to tell you how you should think about something else, right? But what I can do is, because you should form your own opinions, but if you form an opinion, it ought to be as informed as possible. Otherwise, you're kind of, uh, you're not contributing as strongly as you can to the progress of civilization. You might be even regressive if you hold opinions that are either underinformed or misinformed. So, the cost of going to into space remains high, especially if you want to send people. So, you can say, from a business point of view, if there's no return on that investment, I don't want to do it. You could say that, okay. Well, um, that's that's kind of a narrow way to think of a return on an investment. Uh, Let's look at the cost of having gone to the moon. So look at what those dollars were in today's money. It's about $100 billion. The Apollo program was about $100 billion. And that's about how much the United States has spent building our interstate system, the Eisenhower interstate system that we all today take for granted. So let's compare those two. Well, the interstate enables commerce, transportation, freedom, all the rest of the stuff that we care about and value. And so, okay, well, going to the moon, we send, you know, six missions to the lunar surface. And how do you gain from that? Is there a monetary gain? No, you can run through all the numbers. You didn't come up with a hundred billion dollars of spinoffs, okay, Tang or otherwise. So is there another way to think about it? Oh, maybe, maybe in December, 1968, Apollo eight left earth, orbited the moon, came back. They didn't land. That's why nobody's heard of them. But they were the first people to leave earth ever. So I think that mission should have been heralded a little more than it was. Mm. And upon leaving earth, earth starts shrinking in their field of view. And they go to the moon and orbit the moon, and then Earth rises up over the lunar horizon and they snap a photo. One of the most recognizable photos ever taken to this day is that photo from NASA called Earthrise. Only then did people start thinking differently, like, Spaceship Earth, we're kind of all in this together. Do you realize illustrations of Earth before then hardly ever showed clouds. If, I, if you're a kid in school, I say, draw Earth. You'll draw the continents. you probably draw countries delineated on those continents. Are you drawing the clouds, which is an, uh, a, a proxy for our atmosphere? No. You're not even thinking that way. Does the atmosphere matter? Well, of course it's there. It's always there. Meanwhile, we're belching pollutants into the atmosphere that, that whole time. So does anyone really care? Well, let's look at the hippie movement of the 1960s go back and look at all the placards they're holding up and everything they're doing. It is almost entirely anti-war. There are no environmental posters. There are no, let's love Earth, Earth is our mother Earth. That is not in those movements. Until we go to the moon. Right. Beginning 1969 and 1970, there's a rise of concern for the environment. Earth. Spaceship Earth. That photo from Apollo 8 ended up the cover of the Whole Earth Catalog. It became attached to this movement of, yeah, make love not war and take care of Mother Earth. Oh, by the way, when was the Environmental Protection Agency founded? In 1970. While we are going to the moon. And under legislation from them, we ended up banning leaded gas. Banning leaded paint. We ended up having renewed laws to protect the purity of our water and to protect the diversity of species. And so this goes on and on. And if you ask people in the day, well, why why did you start doing it then? They say, I don't know, it felt like it was the right time. My read of that period tells me that going to the moon opened up a vista in our hearts and minds that has never reclosed, maybe opened for the first time, where the modern environmental movement took a giant leap forward over those three years we were going to the moon. What is that worth to you? These are perspectives. Perspectives I don't even know we could have predicted we would have had in order to justify that expenditure. But what I can tell you is that exploration, the history of exploration, though dotted with some very ugly chapters, nonetheless has been a general force of enlightenment on our species, and on civilization itself. And I don't want to be the one who says, let's solve our problems on Earth before we go anywhere outside of Earth into this
1: grand, extensive universe that surrounds us. I was just looking for a yes or no, Neil, but uh, that was that was great. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, one thing I like about cosmic queries the most is I think it, it doesn't Talk down to anybody, but it's it's not over anyone's head at the same time. And it it appeals to a wide uh, Range of ages. I I think are able to understand This I, I do wonder if there's one thing you you can point to that you've learned or studied about space That impresses you or even confounds you above all others
0: Yeah, so first of all, here's something I think about often and then I'll get more specifically to your question Before Isaac Newton, so now we're going back to the late 1600s, early 1700s, before Isaac Newton, it was not entirely obvious that the universe was knowable. You can know certain things, you know, why a rock falls or why ice melts when you heat it, but my gosh, look at those planets. What's making that happen? And what are those stars? And Isaac Newton comes along and brings the power of mathematics to questions you pose about the operations of the universe. And we learn that it works. If you're clever and inventive and and brilliant, <laughs> that helps, you, you, can, you can decode the operations of nature. That for me is probably one of the most significant chapters there ever was in civilization because Imagine just walking around, seeing things you don't understand, and they're just mysterious. And okay, you invent gods or pixies or gremlins, whatever. And then that's your explanation for it. And then you move on. Okay, that's how we were for millennia. All right. So I reflect on the power of science often, and then realize that it's the human intellect that figured this out. So I'm I'm just impressed by that. And I just want to pat humans on the back and say, good job there, <laughs> to, to to go from thinking it's all random to realizing there are laws of physics that underpin it all. Mm. So that's just one sort of important revelation that affects all understanding of how the universe works. But now, more specifically, oh, by the way, thanks for noticing that the book does not talk down. You, you know when somebody's talking down to you. Uh, when they say, oh, let me simplify it for you, you know, when they start coming across right. that way, I don't think that gives respect to the learning capacity of who you're speaking to. So thank you for noticing that. It is very much on purpose. Plus there's a lot of pop culture references that just mm-hmm. make it fun to attach the science to what you're already familiar with. And I think that improves the, the, the endurance of what you have learned, because it's now associated with other things you continue to care about. Plus I, there are several dozen tweets of mine that that are sprinkled through, that are relevant to that those pages. Um, but I see it as a kind of a little reward. You made it this far, time for another tweet, like a little biscuit a little along, the, yep. along the journey. That's why I think about it and I hope people receive them that way. So uh, of all the content of the book, the one for me that's the most terrifying is one of the ways that everything might end. There's a whole chapter on this, how will it all end, right? And we know we're in an expanding universe that's accelerating in its expansion. And that acceleration is unrelenting. And right now the most distant galaxies are being accelerated beyond our horizon of visibility. And as this continues, it'll start reaching to even closer and closer galaxies, accelerating them beyond our visual horizon. Then it'll become so powerful It'll start ripping uh, stars away, um, peeling stars away from our galaxy so that the night sky, formerly a mixture of galaxies and stars would then just be stars from our own galaxy, then it won't even have that. And there'll be nothing in the night sky. That's a sad future. But that's just the beginning. If this keeps up, then it'll start ripping apart molecules as the force of accelerated expansion overcomes the molecular forces that hold you together. That starts ripping apart, then it starts ripping apart atoms, then it starts ripping apart the particles that comprise the atoms, and then you reach a point where the very fabric of the space-time continuum is reached. That is quantized, that is not stretchable. You've reached the elastic limits of all of space and time, yet it continues. We call it the big rip, it'll just rip. And I I don't even want to think about what that means, but it's one of the scenarios that lay before us among several, depending on uncertainties that remain with us at this stage. But I want to say something about the book, that the book is not just a collection of questions with answers. It's a collection of questions, some of which have good answers that we're we're good with. Others, this is the best we've got, deal with it. And others, look, we don't even know if this is the right question to ask. But it's questions that we carry with us as a species. Some of the deepest questions there ever were. And that's what comprises the book.
1: Yeah, what do you say, The, discover the, the rediscover the joy of just asking the question? Sometimes. Yes. Yeah, I'll admit to you, the first chapter I read was that uh, the chapter on how it will all end. That's fascinating. Well, oh, you went straight there. I did. Oh. <laughs> I had to. And you, you couldn't you, wait, huh? You describe <laughs> it so cinematically. Um, I, I just loved it. One more question for you. Thanks for spending so much time with us. In the last year, we've spent a lot more time alone than a lot of us are used to. Is there something about ourselves in this strange time that you think we can learn by, by casting our gaze to the skies?
0: COVID was like a Mars invasion, right? So Mars aliens come and attack humans. That's a recurring theme in many a Hollywood film. And the Martians are a common enemy. So then we all band together and fight and then ultimately defeat the Martians. So is that what happened here? Here's an invader from earth and it attacks humans. Your chances of getting it are the same. No matter where you live, what language you speak, what an occasion to band together as a species and fight a common enemy and put down our tribal forces that separate us. If you want to appeal to tribalism, let it be the tribe of humans coming together. I'll give us a C And so it gives me less hope for how we would handle an actual, truly, devastatingly lethal affront, either biologically or just from an actual alien. So next time you go out and look up, ask yourself, how did we do with COVID and how would we do if, in fact, alien spaceships came to take us over?
1: Yeah, come on. Did these people see the blob or, or what? <laughs> Jeez. Neil deGrasse Tyson is director of the Hayden Planetarium, and his new book is called Cosmic Queries, StarTalk's Guide to Who We Are, How We Got Here, and Where We're Going. Neil, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Ian Bush. We'll have another episode out soon.